Chapter One of the Fortunes of Philippa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ariel Lipshaw. The Fortunes of Philippa by Angela Brazel. Chapter One My Southern Home. When we two parted in silence and tears, half broken hearted to sever for years. Must I really go? I'm afraid it has come to that, Philippa. I believe I have kept you here too long already. You're ten years old now, growing a tall girl, and not learning half the things you ought to. I feel there's something wrong about you, but I don't know quite how to set it right. After all, I suppose a man can't expect to bring up a girl entirely by himself. My father looked me up and down with a glance of despair, which would have been comical if it had not seemed at the same time somewhat pathetic. I can do the fifth proposition in Euclid, I objected, and the Latin grammar as far as irregular verbs. My father shook his head. That might help you a little if you were a boy in a public school, but it's not all that your mother would have wished. You've not been taught a note of music, you can't speak French or dance a quadrille, and if it came to a question of fine sewing, I'm afraid you'd scarcely know which was the right end of your needle. The list of my deficiencies was so dreadfully true that I had no excuse to bring forward, and my father continued. Besides, it's absurd to attempt to educate you in this out-of-the-way spot, where you've no opportunity of mixing with cultured people. I wish you to see England, and learn English ways, and to have companions of your own age. I think San Carlos is the most beautiful place in the world, I said quickly, and I don't want any companion but you which shows me all the more that it's time I sent you away," answered father, though it will strain my heart-strings to part with you, I own. It's such a splendid opportunity, too, when Madame Montpelier is returning to Paris and will take charge of you on the voyage. No, Philippa child, I've quite made up my mind. You're to go to England, and you'll please me best by taking it bravely, and trying to learn all you can in the years we must be apart from each other. We were sitting on the vine-covered terrace of our beautiful South American home. Below us the bright flowers of our tropical garden shone a blaze of colour against the dark background of the lemon-trees. Away to the right stretched the dazzling blue sea, with here and there the dark sail of a native fishing-craft, while to the left rose the white houses of the little Spanish town of San Carlos, with its picturesque, moorish-looking church and campanile, set in a frame of tall palm-trees, which led the eye over the long slopes of the coffee-plantations up to the hillside, to where the sharp peaks of the Sierras towered like giants against the cloudless sky. For ten years I had lived here as in paradise, and the thought that I must leave it, and go far away over the sea to strangers and to an unknown land, filled me with dismay. As an only child, and a motherless one, I suppose I had been spoilt, though to be very dearly loved does not always necessarily mean to be overindulged. I am sure my father spent many anxious hours over my upbringing, and with him I was accustomed to prompt obedience, though I fear I ruled Juanita, my mulatto nurse, and Tasso, the black bearer, with a rod of iron. Friends of my own age and station I had none. My father was all in all to me, and in his constant companionship I had grown up a somewhat old-fashioned child, learning a few desultory lessons, reading every story-book upon which I could lay my hands, and living in a make-believe world of my own, as different from the actual realities of life as could be well imagined. It was indeed time for a change, though the transplanting process might be hard to bear. 
I think many urgent letters from relations in England had helped to form my father's decision, and his mind once made up, he hurried on the preparations for my journey, in a kind of nervous anxiety lest he should repent, and refuse to part with me after all. "'I suppose your aunt will find your clothes all right,' he said, as he watched Juanita pack my cabin trunk. "'I've told her to rig you out afresh if she doesn't. We don't go in for Paris modes at San Carlos, so I'm afraid you will hardly be in the latest fashion. You must be a good girl and do as you're told. You'll find everything rather different over there, but you'll soon get used to it and be happy, I hope. Though what I'm to do without you here I don't know,' he added wistfully. "'You're all I've got now.' And he looked out over the blue waters of the bay to that little plot under the shade of the campanile where my pretty mother lay sleeping so quietly. I understood him, and it added a fresh pang to my sorrow. Child as I was, I felt I had in some measure helped to fill that vacant place, and the thought that I must leave him so lonely, so very lonely, seemed sometimes to make the parting almost harder than I could bear. I tried my best, however, to be bright and brave for his sake, and I made up my mind that I would do my very utmost to learn all he wished so that perhaps I might get through the work in quicker time than he expected, and be able to return to him the sooner. The grief of the coloured portion of our household at the news of my departure was both noisy and vehement. Juanita dropped copious tears into my boxes. José, the garden-boy, assured me that England was situated in the midst of a frozen sea, where your fingers fell off with the cold, and you chopped up your breakfast with a hatchet. Pedro, the cook, was doubtful if I should survive a course of English dishes, which he heard were composed chiefly of beef and plum pudding, while salads and sauces were unknown, and Tasso, after a vain appeal to be allowed to accompany me, drew such appalling pictures of the perils of the seas that I wondered how even his devotion could have induced him to think of venturing on shipboard. Of all the many friends whom I left behind, I think the one I regretted the most was Tasso. My earliest recollection is that of clinging to his stout black forefinger to toddle down the flagged pathway between the orange trees which led to the terrace that overlooked the sea. Carried on his broad shoulders, I had made my first acquaintance with the streets of San Carlos. There one might see the funny washerwomen standing like ducks in the river to beat their clothes upon the stones, the long-eared mules with their gay trappings coming down from the mountains laden with bags of coffee-berries the solemn Indian muleteers with their dark cloaks and fringed leggings, the little black children dancing and singing in the bright sunshine, the open-air restaurants where men of all nations sat chatting, smoking cigarettes, and drinking au sucre under the palm-trees, or the fashionable carriages of the smart Spanish ladies and gentlemen who thronged the corso in the late afternoon. Negro servants, having much of the child in their nature, are wonderfully patient with little children, Tasso humoured me and amused me with untiring zeal, telling me wonderful stories of African magic, singing me long ballads in the half-Spanish, half-Indian dialect of the district, catching for me butterflies, green lizards, or the brilliant little hummingbirds which flitted about our garden, or picking shells for me upon the beach below. It was on this shore, just under the windows of our house, that I was once the heroine of a very real adventure which had almost cost me my life. I think at the time I could not have been more than four years old, but it made such a deep impression on my mind that I can remember every detail as clearly as though it had happened only yesterday. I had been taken by Juanita to play in the cool of the evening on the little strip of silver sand and shingle which lay between our high garden wall and the dashing surf. 
I had left my doll's cape on the terrace, and I begged Juanita to go and fetch it. For a long time she refused, but on my promising not to stir from the spot where I was playing, she was at last persuaded, and hurried up the steep flight of steps on to the veranda. It had been an intensely hot day, and I was tired, so I thought I would sit down and rest until Juanita returned. Looking round I saw, as I imagined, a nice smooth round stone close by, upon which I settled myself very comfortably, curling my little fat legs under me. But the stone must surely have been an enchanted rock out of one of Tasso's fairy stories, for it suddenly began to move, and, rising up, it put out four flat feet, and marched briskly down the beach towards the sea. The entire unexpectedness of it so utterly terrified me that I could neither cry nor move, only hold on tight with both hands, and wonder what black magic had seized upon me. The turtle, for such in reality my stone proved to be, rapidly gained the water, and it was about to paddle off in a hurry with its strange burden, when Juanita, returning on to the veranda, saw my desperate plight, and by her frantic screams brought Tasso, who dashed down the steps and into the sea, just in time to rescue me before the turtle took a dive into the deeper water. I do not think Tasso ever quite forgave poor Juanita for this accident, though she beat her breast and lamented in a perfect hailstorm of southern grief. And always after this he would keep an eye upon me when I was in her charge, appearing mysteriously from behind trees, popping his dark head through windows, or peering between the vines of the pergola, coming so suddenly and unexpectedly upon us that I began to think he had the gift of some of his magic heroes, and could make himself visible and invisible at pleasure. I like to recall those happy days of my early childhood, days when the sun always shone, and the air was full of the scent of orange-blossom, and my father and I lived a life apart among the flowers in the old terraced garden, where the hum of the little town, and the roll of the surf below, seemed but a distant echo of the world beyond. In the summer-time, when the heat at San Carlos grew unbearable, we moved up into the hills on the verge of the great forests. It was cooler there, for the wind blew fresh from the snow-capped Sierras, and I could run to my heart's content along the narrow paths of our coffee plantations, or chase Juanita between the cinnamon trees. Sometimes, as a special treat, my father would take me in front of him on his horse and ride into the forest. I can remember yet the thrill of those expeditions into that tropical fairyland. The tall trees stretched before our path in a never-ending vista, festooned by gigantic creepers covered with flowers. Funny little chattering monkeys looked down from the branches and scolded us as we passed. Gorgeous green parrots rent the air with their screams, while tiny hummingbirds and innumerable brilliant insects luxuriated in the wealth of plant life. Sometimes we would see the giant spiders which spin webs so strong that they will often knock an unwary rider's hat from his head, or sometimes a puma or a jaguar would slink away through the dense undergrowth, and I would cling a little closer to my father's arm, and think what would happen to me if I ventured alone into the forest. Of San Carlos and its inhabitants I saw little. Though my father was the British consul, he did not move in the society of the place more than was absolutely necessary, nor, for good reasons of his own, did he wish me to become very friendly with the children of his Spanish neighbours. I rarely, if ever, visited any of the white villas that dotted the hillsides, and the pretty little dark-eyed wands or margaritas who sometimes peeped over the cactus hedges were strangers to me. On one day only in the year did my father relax his rule. 
he would allow me to accept an invitation to watch the carnival from the veranda of the government house. How immensely I looked forward to those occasions! Juanita would proudly dress me in my best, and I would drive by father's side down the corso to the great white house, where we were welcomed by the governor himself, and shown to a place of honour upon the balcony, where we could see everything that was passing in the street below. It was a gay sight. First came the priests in their gorgeous vestments, carrying high the gilded images of the saints, and behind them bands of sweet-faced children dressed as angels, in long white robes, with soft plumed wings fastened on to their shoulders. Carriages followed, garlanded with flowers, in which sat men and women who represented Greek gods, or nymphs, or famous characters from history, attended by tiny boys with gilt wings as cupids. After these came a mob of maskers, jesters, clowns, harlequins, columbines, peasants of all nations, fishermen, hunters, Indians or savages, shouting, gesticulating, pushing one another about, and all seeming to try to make as much noise as they possibly could. It was then that the fun began. Piled up in the balcony were baskets full of flowers, confetti, bonbons, and tiny wax balls full of scented water. We flung these far and wide among the crowd below, some receiving the flowers and bonbons, and some being hit by the wax balls, which, bursting, scented the victim rather too heavily for his enjoyment. It was all taken, however, with the greatest good humour, and the merry throng passed on to parade round the town, and end with a dance under the palm-trees in the public gardens. And so my life in my southern home had passed like a kind of delightful dream, and it was not until my father talked of change that I had ever thought there could be an awakening. The little time left to me fled all too fast, and brought the much-dreaded day when I must leave everything that had grown so dear. I can never forget our parting. A hurried message had been sent to us that the steamer was to start earlier, and that I must go on board in the evening, instead of on the following morning, as had been at first arranged. The full moon shone on the waters of the bay, lighting up the vessel which was to take me so far away, and which had steamed out a little from the quay where the launch was waiting. Big girl as I was, my father carried me in his arms down the garden. I held my cheek pressed close against his, and we neither of us spoke, for there are some heartbreaks too great for words. The fireflies were flitting about like living jewels, every blossom looked clear-cut and perfect in the moonlight. I can smell even now the heavy scent of the orange blossom as we went along the terrace walk, and hear the tremulous call of some night-bird among the mimosa trees. It was but a short way to the quay, and we were soon in the launch, steaming out over the bay to where the light of the great ship shone red against the pale moonlight. "'So this is the small passenger I'm waiting for,' said the captain, as my father helped me on deck. "'Well, I'm sorry, but I can't allow elaborate leave-takings. We're beyond our time already, the tide's on the turn, and if we don't start at once we shan't be able to cross the bar. We've had our steam-up since sunset.' "'Good-bye, my darling, my darling,' said father, as he held me close for one long last kiss. We shall meet again, God willing, before many years have passed away. Be a good girl, and whatever you do don't forget your poor old daddy, who will be thinking of you always, wherever you may be." He put me into the friendly arms of Madame Montpelier, who was crying for sympathy, and ran down the companion ladder as if he were afraid to look back. The little launch drew off, the great screw began to revolve slowly, and the ship started eastward in a train of silvery light, leaving my happy home behind, and taking me to a new and untried world, 
where my future was all before me. End of chapter 1